Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Projects Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by art historian, curator and writer David Elliott to discuss art as a means of cultural exchange. David shares with us his experience of challenging the Euro-American concept of modern art by exhibiting contemporary Asian, African and Latin American artists through his expansive career, as well as his new approach of looking at art history through trousers. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, David. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? <laughs> a, the older the person you speak to, the longer this uh, answer gets. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess I describe myself as an art historian and cultural historian. Uh, I've been interested in both from an early age. Although when I was at school and immediately when I left school, I, I was most involved with theatre. This was in the 60s and it was theatre rather than the visual arts in Great Britain, which was the dominant art form. Uh, had great directors such as Joan Littlewood, uh, George Devine, Peter Hall, Peter Brook. I mean, it was an amazing time. Uh, we'd all, we just discovered Brecht and we had Beckett on the boil. It was, it was wonderful. And I went and left school and then worked for a while in the theatre and realised that I didn't like actors. <laughs> and my world imploded. It was, it was a bit simpler than that. It had something to do with, uh, with mimesis and uh, other things. And uh, uh, I, I went and studied history. I was offered, lucky enough to be offered a place to read history at Durham University. And I, I as a as I was fascinated by folk music as well, and there was a big mining culture up there, um, I got involved in labor history as, my, as an undergraduate, and that was my subject of my thesis, really. While I was at Durham, I started to look around and for other things to do, and a very good friend had organized in my first year an exhibition about surrealism, an exhibition, because it's a festival of surrealism. And one of his school friends was the son of Andrew Lanyon, who was a very good painter, and who knew Edwin James, who was a rather famous collector of surrealist artworks. And somehow he'd wangled it, so he'd, he'd got up in the student uh, union building, this amazing collection with Magritte's boot feet, and there was a Picasso, and it blew my head off. And on top of that, there was Bunuel's Chien Andalou and other surrealist films playing at the same time. There was a live production of Apollinaire's The Rest of Theresius. And as a, as a kind of Gesamtkunstwerk in itself, it was really uh, mind-blowing. And uh, Ian Barker, uh, who, who, who did this as a close friend, he just got my mind thinking. And... Um, Two years later, I decided I would do something similar, but really based around art and society in Germany from 1900 to 1935. And this uh, was a series of exhibitions which took place in the Student Union building, which had museum quality security by then, in various colleges and uh, 
theatrical performance and, and music and things like that. But what, what got me moving on it was um, I'd grown up uh, part of my childhood in, near Leicester. And Leicester's museum, well, when I was kind of a dentist, I had bad teeth. Uh, and going to the dentist, the kind of payoff was to go to the museum at the same time. And uh, it was just down the road. And Leicester Museum had, and still has, an excellent collection of German Expressionism. And uh, it was um, quite simply because a rather lot of the Jewish emigres went there in the 30s and had to sell things that they brought with them. And uh, the museum was bright enough, or a curator at the museum at the museum that time was bright enough to, to buy these at a very low price. And these had struck me, and the story around them struck me about the whole emigre question and the fact that these works were regarded as, as degenerate by the Nazis. I wasn't very keen on the right wing at that time in the 60s in any kind, and particularly fascist. And I just thought, well, if, if those guys think this is degeneracy, I'm in for it. I really want lots and lots more of this. And so that was the chain of thinking that led me to want to do this, this festival. It was called the Germany and Ferment Festival. <laughs> and uh, bringing together art, politics, society, culture. And of course, there was film as well involved in this expressionist film. And uh, yeah, I spent a large part of my last year in, in, in Durham doing this rather than doing my uh, studies. Uh, but anyway, I did scrape a degree. And from there, I, I realized that I wanted to know more. I was trained as a historian, I was a very baby historian. And I wanted to find about more about art history. I was fortunate to be offered a place at the court of to do an MA. And uh, I sort of began to understand the great possibilities, but also the great limitations of art history, as it was taught in Britain at that time. And, and I sort of went on from there. And uh, my first, uh, well, my first proper job in that, I worked at the Leicester Art Museum for a year and a half as, a, as an assistant in the art department. And then went to the Arts Council as a regional art officer. This sounds a very colonial thing. It was uh, responsible for the northeast of England. You know, we put on our topees and khaki shorts and went up there to look at the natives. It wasn't quite that bad, but you know, it was coming out of that matrix. Uh, and uh, and then I, I, I moved to the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford uh, as director, which was a kind of alternative space when I went there. And over the 20 years that I, I stayed there, I, I really wanted to look at what modern art meant, whose art it was. And it was very clear, uh, it didn't take very long for me to work out, it was mainly uh, people in Western Europe and North America who were, who were mainly male and almost totally white, and this was modern art. And as I'd learned in art history that actually part of the, the thing is comparing one thing with another to see its qualities, part of those qualities, whether it's any good or not, whether it's genuine or not. But this was such a small gene pool. And so I, I felt compelled while I was there to really start looking outside this, this uh, golden cage and to look at other modernities, and not only other modernities, but other cultures which were not modern or not regarded as modern. Of course they were modern, they were victims of modernity rather than the victors or beneficiaries of, of, of modernity. As part of this operation of alterity, I started with the Soviet Union first, and particularly on early avant-garde art, 
then moving to more towards the contemporary situation and uh, started actually managing to borrow things from Soviet Union, which it hadn't been possible for people in the West to get before. But, but also in Mexico, I mean, it's not only a small step away from the revolutionaries of, of the Soviet Union to those in Mexico, and uh, was involved with the National Institute of Arts and Humanities in Mexico, the big uh, Orozco, Jose Clemente Orozco retrospective, one of the great founders of, of modern Mexican art, a great muralist, and this was part of a big European tour. And then to India. And from India, that was a series of shows, a festival, if you like, uh, looking at um, art since the independence, the development of modern art in India since, since independence. And that was a, a show looking at folk art, particularly uh, folk art of the Rajasthan and Madhya, Madhya Pradesh, hills, uh, wayside shrines of Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh. And then the third exhibition, which was about uh, photography, it's called Another India, all, all made by Indian artists, of course, and the film program too. So this, this really opened up my eyes to, firstly, the fact that uh, with the, with the so-called folk art of the, hill, of the wayside shrines, this was as vital and as part of our contemporary world as anything else, yet it didn't, I shouldn't have been doing it. It should have been an ethnology museum. But to me, it, it wasn't. It was, it was full of invention and, and life and surrealism. Not words people that maybe the people who venerated these objects would have used, but important and, and moving. And then the, 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 the story of, of, of modernity from the Bombay progressives in the 40s to the present day, it came right up to people like Nalini Malani and Anish Kapoor, who, who uh, kindly agreed to be to be Indian for the purposes of that exhibition and uh, it, uh, it it really was a was an eye-opener to me uh, of a completely different attitude uh, and posture towards modernity and then the second one in you can say these it wasn't as created as a series this was in 83 I think the Indian shows in 85 did a show called reconstructions uh, avant-garde in Japan 1945 to 1965. Now, this, uh, at least there was a cultural link through imperialism with India. With Japan, the only, <coughs> the only serious link had been the war. And uh, uh, modern Indian and contemporary uh, Japanese art was completely unknown. And I was lucky enough to find a, a student, uh, a DPhil student in Oxford called Kazukaido, who was, uh, who was researching this. And uh, I, I, it was it was a it was an open book for me. I just didn't know what was going on there, but it struck me as I knew quite a lot about earlier Japanese art and the quality of it and the invention in it that it was worth taking a look. And she said, "Yeah, well, that's my subject. I'm looking at the how how artists got back to after after World War II and established myself." I just wiped away by the work. It was incredible. I mean, the uh, 1950 painting by Taro Okamoto called The Law of the Jungle, showing this, and it's a big picture, about two meters wide. Um, and there's this big shark in, the, in fluorescent colors with a zip going from its snout all the way up to its uh, back. And then there's three wise monkeys you know, with the eyes, mouth, ears, sort of painted at the bottom. And this apparently was made at the time of the Red Purges uh, in Tokyo in uh, 1950. It was just wow 
And this was a time in the mid-80s when people were talking about uh, new figuration in painting in Britain, about bad art, bringing things together, popular art, bringing the things together, graffiti was starting, all these things. And it seemed to me to be bang on the, on the, on the nose of all of that, yet made uh, 40, 45 years earlier. Um, so uh, it was really... Um, uh, another eye-opener for me. And of course, I was able to get, in both of these projects, outside Oxford, <laughs> I was able to travel widely in India, travel widely in Japan. And, um, and the third set came, uh, uh, tried to get going as early as 1987, but for political reasons it couldn't take place until 1993, was China. And uh, two big exhibitions developed out of that. One was called China Avant-Garde, which was looking at the generation post-cultural revolution um, in China. So that's so really from 1976 onwards. And we did that with the Haus der Kultur und der Welt uh, in Berlin. And then one that we did off our own bat, because that was very painterly show, a very painterly uh, 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 proposition about that. We wanted to look at site-specific uh, installation work as well. It was, called, um, it was called Silent Energy, New Art from China. And these had big installations site-specifically made, in made in the galleries by people like Sai Guochang, uh, Chen Zhen, uh, Yang Jichang, I mean many, uh, Han Yongping, who came, worked in the spaces. And again, that was a complete eye-opener that you know, these people, one of them was called, Huang Yongping's installation was called Yellow Peril. Uh, and it was, uh, you had to walk underneath it, through it, to get into the show. And it was a, a a kind of cage above your head in which there was something like 2,000 locusts and five scorpions strutting around. And then the rest of it was imperial yellow silk draped either side of you as you walked through and you had to fight through the silk to get into the rest of the show. <laughs> and, uh, Huan Yongping's yellow, yellow peril um, was uh, uh, some comment on, on uh, the racism in, in America in the late 19th century, when, of course, this word was first, of course, very derogatively used. And it was a kind of statement of intent for this young generation of Chinese artists bursting out into the West for the first time, more or less, certainly for the first time in Great Britain. And it was really the first wave of the shows outside China. And, um, yeah, this was... Uh, this, and, and one thing led to another, as you can see. A lot of other things were happening around this as well. Um, but it is, that's uh, not a very short answer to your, your very brief and apposite question. Well, with such an expansive career, I mean, we have to hear all of it. It's a fascinating story. So I would like to start off by uh, asking something I'm sure you must dwell on as a curator. Uh, who does art serve, in your opinion? And how do art exhibits lead to cultural exchange in general? Mm. Well, I think art doesn't serve anyone uh, other than the artist, um, mm. and, and, and it sh neither should it. Um, it just is. And if it's any good, through the sensibility and talent and unique talents of that artist, uh, it will express many things. His or her humanity, culture, uh, environment, but also hopefully go far beyond that. I think art is also um, often about a story or part of a story. That story needs to be understood to put it in some kind of context. But, but uh, talking about common humanity, I mean, this is very important. 
it's something we share. And people are much more interested in looking at differences rather than similarities. And the similarities, I think, wherever you go in the world are far, far greater than the differences. And it's really working with that. And when I started, you know, I was, when I was working director of a museum of modern art, you know, it really mattered whether something was modern or not. And being modern was good. And it just really seemed to me was a stupid idea. <laughs> um, Surely, as an historian, the notion of what is modern seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, we are going back to the mid-70s, of course. But um, you, know, you could use the term avant-garde without being the slightest bit ironical. Uh, and there was an avant-garde. There are a series of avant-gardes. You know, they're mostly coming, started out in, in, in Paris, and then a, a few in Berlin. And, uh, and then they were post-war, they were all in America. And you get one ism banging on after another ism. And by the time it got to the mid-70s, you had minimalism and conceptualism. And it, as Lucy Lippard <laughs> observed, the art object had dematerialized itself almost out of existence. Unless you, you know, it was a bit like clap your hands if you believe in fairies. So th there was a problem with all of that. I don't denigrate the, 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 the uh, minimalism nor, uh, nor conceptualism. In fact, showed many leading artists of that. But, but that has to be seen within its context, within its social and political context. It only makes real sense then within, within the context of hyper-capitalism, of how the, the commodity shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks in different ways and begins to express other ideas and ideals. Um, so, yes, <laughs> that's talking about the, does the art serve? It has to serve the artist. They have to, make, they have to feel it's necessary. If they don't feel it's necessary, if they're being strategic, they're making a career move, forget it. I mean, I'm just not interested. You know, the artist has to be made out of a serious sense of necessity. And out of that necessity, others will sense that necessity themselves. I mean, I truly believe that. And, uh, and also, these, as much as the context may differ, one can quickly get up to speed with the context because they, they have mirrors in many other places. Um, so. And then uh, art exhibitions leading to cultural exchange. Well. Sometimes they were affirmation of their sort of imperialistic moves. Uh, we used to laugh sometimes at the British Council, uh, and this is a very long time ago. Henry Moore was uh, adopted as a kind of regimental mascot for great British art, and Henry Moore exhibitions were plonked across the world in many different places. Now, Henry Moore is a, a wonderful artist, a very high quality artist. No, no, bad comment on his work, but he was, he was adopted. And those weren't about exchange, they're about what people now call soft power. Mm. Now, as if you're dealing with governments, I think I'm all for soft power and I'm all for the British Council and been a great beneficiary of their, of their aid over the years. And it really hurts me that, uh, that the government has, I mean, ever since the early 80s, been hacking away at the British Council, its budgets and its programs systematically, just as they have at so many public services. But the British Council, like the BBC, is very, very important for our culture and for conversations with others, not for, not for power. It's for actually exchange. And this is the, this is the way forward. Um, and I think that's really uh, uh, what exhibitions, they're, they're, they're conversations. Um, 
there, there was an exhibition I did in Sydney uh, in 2010. It was the 17th Biennale. And it was called um, The Beauty of Distance, Songs of Survival in a Precarious Age. And the beauty of distance, I mean, everyone said, oh, you're talking about us in Australia. You know, we're a long way away from everywhere. And I said, um, no, uh, everyone's a long way away from something <laughs> being made here in Sydney for you. But it's also taking into account that this is uh, the different venues. I think there are about seven different venues around the harbour area. This, this is the area where some of the first encounters took place with indigenous people. And this is important. It's important for you. It's important for them. You're trying to live together with varying degrees of success. So let's look at this distance. Let's look at cultural distance today between you, United Commerce, and them. And I've involved a lot of so-called indigenous people from other parts of the world in the show as part of this, this conversation, if you like, this story, the story about distance and how beautiful it was, not something to be uh, afraid of. It's very important because it's only with distance can you begin to appreciate something more, more fully. Uh, and of course, there's close distance as well. It's, it's, it's when you want to sort of completely smother something else by removing all distance and mm. certainly having no critical distance that things get, get dangerous. So, um, I mean, that's, uh, I think exhibitions can do, can open up these, these, these questions. and They're very important in that way. And the stories can be enjoyed at many different levels. Many, many funny stories come out of it. There was uh, Paul McCarthy work called The Ship of Fools, which is a kind of life-size ship was actually installed in a shed on one of the keys. And <laughs> It was, a, it was a gunboat with these kind of crazy people on it, and, uh, sort of falling off and very bad taste. It was wonderful. Mm. That's fascinating. And I suppose thinking in terms of like national cultures, conversating through our dictated spaces, I think it's probably the most accessible means of experiencing another culture as opposed to literary works or music or film. It's something which anyone, you don't need to know anything about the language or the history of a nation, you can just experience another culture through painting or sculpture. It's so much more immediate. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, there are such things as national. I mean, not nationalist characteristics, national characteristics, yeah. One talks about Russian literature, Russian music, I mean, English literature, and you, there's certain names spring to mind, <laughs> like Shakespeare and Jane Austen, and, um, and, and it's, it's all perfectly innocent, I think, there's no problem with that whatsoever. Um, and uh, I, th I think you, you, you were wondering about the Japanese, um, you know, the, the impact of Japanese art in Europe in the, in the 19th century, it was incredibly important. And here was obviously a a strong, ancient, heavy culture. Uh, the the very humble objects which people often saw, which were scrunched up woodblock prints used as packing materials for other things, uh, were done at such a, a meticulous level of production. Um, and also the vision, the vision, visit, the way how people envisioned things was so very different with the cutoffs and the, the compressed spaces and. Um, one could say stylized poses, all these things that made a, made a, a huge impact on, on artists, not only in France, uh, 
but in, in Britain, um, Germany, America, you know, it really spread like a wildfire. And of course, chinoiserie in the 18th century had also much more in sort of interior decoration and ceramics, but uh, but had had a similar impact. And the, did the Indian style, and the Egyptian style. We uh, the West had learned to feed. It desperately needed the outside world to give it some some new ideas, and uh, it wasn't only a matter of conquest, although it was related. Delacroix's uh, famous picture of the of the girls in the harem is in uh, 1833, uh, three years after, after France went into Algeria. Uh, so these things are often not that innocent, but uh, they do also uh, fill a huge vacuum which is needing to be filled. Definitely. So if I may ask, uh, how useful is it to use these concepts of nations when it comes to the influence of art movements, saying things like uh, Japanese art influencing European arts and the Japanese movement? Well, Japanese, uh, I think, is, one doesn't have to use the Japanese nation. It's a Japanese style, and uh, soon Japanese style gets an impetus of its own. And I think that uh, misunderstanding is as important as understanding these things. And once it gets part of a currency, it then starts to flow. And uh, just think of um, uh, William Edward uh, Godwin's uh, architecture and furniture in the uh, 1860s, 70s, 80s, which was very strongly influenced by an idea of Japanese art and furniture. And, and really, they're wonderful things. And he moved from Ruskin's Gothic to the Japanese style, you know, the, the leap. And as uh, long as you don't get it confused with nationalism or the nation, national identity, as soon as you do that in Japan, you get into very murky water. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> Certainly not. Um, so, you've already had a very comprehensive chat about your career in curating and writing on art in many different cultural contexts, and Japan is merely one of them. I'm particularly interested in your curatorship of the Mori Art Museum in Tokyo, as you were the first non-Japanese curator of a major Japanese museum at the time. How did, you, how did this influence your decision-making on what to exhibit? Mm, well, I was the first director. Um, and uh, a non-Japanese director, and this was a really big deal. And so I was a very exotic figure there. Uh, <laughs> I was Kancho, which means the boss, the director, uh, which is a very venerable uh, honorific. And, um, and so I was an object of great curiosity. But they did in, in Tokyo, what they do everywhere is that you, you work out from your context. In Oxford for 20 years, I worked out from the context of Oxford, which is a, an ancient university town, which from its very beginnings had many international contacts and, contacts and continued to have so, and an international and sceptical uh, tradition, um, and was able to benefit from that. And also the fact that everyone knew the name Oxford. It, one didn't use the term brand at that time, but uh, probably it wasn't far off it. And again, as I explained in Sydney, working with the place of Sydney, and not just the, the, the spot on the map, but also the individual buildings. You know, some of those buildings in Sydney were, one of them was a prison, a colonial prison, um, where, where um, uh, sometimes Aboriginal people were, were imprisoned in the, in the 18th century, in the 19th century. And uh, others were um, were much more, rather bit more benign spaces like museums, but um, 
here was a complete new build in Rapongi, which was a, a, one of the post-war pleasure districts of, uh, of, of Tokyo. Uh, so a whole district basically had been knocked down, and this new district had been built up by Minoru Mori, who was the, the founder of it and the developer of it. And he decided, I think very smartly, cannily, that he needed something to distinguish the place. And he said, I'm going to have art all around this 14 hectare site. And I'm going to have a museum on the top of the tallest building. Well, <laughs> something slightly crazy about that, but uh, uh, he uh, had, we got the lifts which were necessary and all the security we needed um, to be able to do uh, top quality exhibitions there. And so this, uh, this skyscraper, uh, 54 stories, which then had a, had a viewing deck above the museum, so you could see have a 360-degree view of the whole city, um, the museum beneath on two floors initially. And uh, it was a, just an incredible sight. So we felt, felt like we were a radio mast sort of bombing, art, bombarding art rays onto the city of Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of crazy idea. Um, and um, it was, a, it was a wonderful, it was incredible, slightly frightening, but, but wonderful challenge because you could go up one floor and you'd see 360 degrees, all of the pulsating city around you. And on a very clear day, you could even see Mount Fuji. So what a competition to try and get art to be able to, to stand up to that competition. And you know, I, that, was, that was a challenge. And I, I think that uh, succeeded while I was there anyway. And they're still doing an extremely good job. So if I might move on to your recently published book, Art and Trousers, Tradition and Modernity in Contemporary Asian Art. Uh, it presents a fascinating novel approach to intercultural influence through art. Could you explain for us what the humble trouser represents in 20th century Asian art? Well, it's a kind of story. <laughs> I don't think it represents anything much in, in 20th century Asian art. It represents, um, on one level, uh, uh, a kind of absurdity. Uh, the trouser first appears in the book. It, it, it's split into, into three sections of the book. Um, one is called Histories, which is about regions in, in Asia and uh, their particular histories. Uh, the second book is called um, uh, Stories, and those are a series of 35 monographs of different artists in different, from different parts of Asia. And then the third part of the book is called um, Migrations. And I think there's about seven or eight uh, artists who actually, from different countries, who actually had to leave um, their home country to understand how much of part of the culture it was. So that, that's a kind of general structure, but the, each of those sections is, is prefaced by a story about trousers. So the first one, so if you like, this is a kind of meta, a, me, a meta history which wraps up the whole thing. You can say that Asian art is the victim of this, uh, of this trouser enfoldment. And um, it starts off with the slippered pantaloon, which is a quotation from uh, Shakespeare, as you like it. It's what I think the sixth age of man, uh, has shrieky voice, squeaky old man, who is dressed as a commedia dell'arte de fig de figure, uh, pantalone. Uh, so that is uh, this figure of ridicule, who is old, but trying to look like a young man and still lecherous. 
So that's one side of, uh, of, uh, of the trouser. And it goes on into um, the clowns from circus, uh, a tradition that is, moves across the whole uh, Eurasian landmass, and also the shadow puppets. And uh, I focus in particular on, um, on Harry Dono, an Indonesian artist who uh, was working with me in Oxford. And he made a number of uh, shadow puppet exhibit, uh, shows uh, about uh, using traditional figures um, which were about politics today, Indonesian politics today. So on the local level, people could enjoy them, the shadow puppet thing. But they also had this undertext of, 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 of terrible authoritarianism, terrible violence, uh, which was in Indonesia at that time. Other uh, contemporary uh, Asian figures who appeared in this slippered pattern, so my narrative was very straight about the tradition of, of uh, absurdity in trousers, uh, going through. <laughs> I, I end up reading the whole thing, so I won't, I won't go there. But the artists who, who were shown, uh, Chachai Pupia, a Thai artist who did these bronze self-portraits of himself, bearing his buttocks, showing his head through his, his, his uh, legs at the audience. So the, uh, uh, um, a, a Thai version of Till Eulenspiegel, uh, this medieval figure who used to get up to such tricks as well. Uh, Aida Makoto, uh, who is a, a middle generation artist based in Tokyo. And he made a short video called Ueno Pantaloon Diary. So Pantaloon, Pantalone, picking up on this Commedia dell'arte subject. Heaven knows how or why he just did. And in, in it, it's him looking a very full-on baggy trousered figure, wetting himself in, uh, in a loop uh, in Ueno Park, which is very, very popular, with a crowd of laughing schoolgirls looking and teeter tittering at him as he's doing this. So it's a very pathetic image. And then the other, uh, one of the other images I show in this section is a kind of breaking down preconceptions, looking at absurdity and how people turn things on their, on their heads, is um, by Victor and Yelena Voroibiva. Uh, they're based in Almaty in Kazakhstan. And it's an image from a series of images they call Kazakhstan Blue Period, of course referring to Picasso. There's, blue is the Kazakhstan national color, and blue appears in one in each of these hundred photographs, but in this one, it's a boy, a young boy, with a kind of cardboard conical hat on his head, uh, like a party hat in bright blue, uh, with his arms sort of draped low behind him and his baggy trousers. He looks like Piero, absolute dead ringer for Piero out of the Commedia dell'arte. He's standing in front of this wasteland with this ugly, empty, derelict block of concrete flats built in the 70s. That's the blue period. So that, <laughs> I'm trying to make these kind of links and sort of show how things aren't quite as simple as people think they are. To break down this self-entitlement of modernity, whereas everything, when I started, if something was modern, it wasn't worth considering. I certainly shouldn't be looking at it. I shouldn't be showing it in my museum. Yet in the Indian exhibition in 1983, I was showing that stuff because it was important. It was as contemporary as anything else. Now, in the time space that has elapsed since that time and now, we don't talk about modern art. Modern art, so in the same way, modern art is a historical period. We had mod postmodernism. 
which wasn't really post-anything. It was kind of enterprise modernism. It never really stepped outside its own discourse. But now, thank goodness, we use the term contemporary more. And that isn't loaded in the same way. Being contemporary doesn't mean anything's any good. There's no, there's no kind of value judgment contemporary. It's just whether something is made now or not. And um, so everything's contemporary. The question is, made now, the question is whether it's any good or not. And that's a really interesting question. And I spend my life <laughs> devoted to trying to work out. And I give my own imperfect vision of this. And I try and make stories which link things together, which creates a plausibility about all of this. And I hope people enjoy it. Because if it's not enjoyable, it's not worth doing. So that's the slippered pantaloon. The second section, uh, which is the history of uh, both male and female artists, uh, is called uh, Who is Wearing the Trousers? And that's looking at the, the gendered aspect of, uh, of trousers, which has to do with power in general. And uh, certainly the colonial side comes into that as well. Now, the third uh, um, section of uh, migrations, which is where artists uh, felt compelled to leave, and Eiko Ikamura was one of these artists. She left uh, uh, Mie Prefecture in Japan uh, to go to Spain and then Switzerland and, and Germany to realize her potential, realize potential as an artist. And Hiroshi Sugimoto did the same thing, and plenty of artists have done this. And um, not just going from Asia, I believe artists from Britain and from Europe have to travel to understand who they are very often. Um, I understand, understood a lot more about being British when I moved to Sweden um, uh, to work. Uh, I realized what a class-bound society Britain still is. I thought it was coming to an end. When I moved to Sweden, there is no, it hadn't. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, but uh, yes, a short history of the trouser uh, prefaces this section of migrations. And th that short history of the trouser starts um, uh, Ooh, I think it's, yes, it's about 30,000 years before Common Era in the Mala Malbare, um, uh culture, which is around um, Lake, uh, Lake Baikal in Siberia, and uh, finding the first uh, images of trouser etched on mammoth tusks. Uh, and uh, then uh, also the Cro-Magnon period in Europe is about the same. And uh, there was a, a di museum diorama, um, which was an artwork, it's a photographic artwork made by Hiroshi Sugimoto, which actually shows the same people. So he uh, did a lot of series of museum dioramas and photographed them in such a way that he actually made them look real in a kind of theatrical. And he worked with typologies of many, many different things, uh, drive-in movie theaters, uh, sunsets over the sea, all these things. And he did a set called Dioramas, and Cro-Magnon Man was one of these. So he was, in a way, compressing history, making it look as though it was a photograph made today, when obviously it wasn't. So um, yeah, so these, these early trousers uh, coming from Siberia, then the earliest extant trousers are found on the edges of the uh, Taklamakan Desert in what is now um, uh, Western China, Xinjiang, I think it's probably in Xinjiang province. Um, and uh, uh, these were on mummies and uh, they'd been saved because it was a salt desert. And so uh, textiles and leather and other things had been, uh, had been preserved. 
And so the clothing of these people uh, is, is preserved. And they happen to be rather tall, and they had blue blonde hair and blue eyes. So they weren't in any form uh, from what one identifies as Chinese. Yet these early Chinese uh, trousers uh, were found in China, like so many first things, like gunpowder and spaghetti, uh, came from China. So they're not only uh, this idea of cultural flow, uh, the West tends to think it invented everything, and it's absolutely wrong. I mean, one of my guiding lights in this is a brilliant, now passed away, historian called Jack Goody, uh, whose book, The Theft of History, is a, is a very useful corrective to this kind of Eurocentric, Eurocentric bombasticism. So that, in a nutshell, is, uh, is uh, the, the kind of some of the trajectories in the book and uh, how, it, how it knits together. And uh, each uh, chapter is separate and tells a different story in itself. It is trying to get these to uh, within a general, uh, a general story. And one of those is how recently within Asia, women artists have become so much more important. In fact, since I've written the book, I've done a lot more work on, on Japan and uh, the uh, early feminist artists or women artists who were um, uh, very clearly projecting uh, their own view as, as women on the world um, uh, in the period uh, uh, before World War II. I must say that I am um, victim to the Eurocentricity of uh, inventions of history and if you'd asked me before this interview when I thought trousers were first introduced I would have thought of the Gauls of, of France not uh, in Siberia 30,000 years ago. It's uh, certainly enlightening. <laughs> Well, the Romans uh, stole trousers uh, from, from the Gauls, um, yeah. and the Germanic tribes, um, and uh, they adapted them to their, uh, uh, their wardrobe, so rather late. Uh, and the ancient Greeks and uh, the uh, Romans regarded trousers as absolutely barbaric, as did indeed the, the Chinese emperor's court um, in the uh, um, you know, way warring states period, uh, because the trousers were worn by barbarians. And actually, the same barbarians in China that were coming uh, east from the west and they're fighting uh, against the, uh, uh, the Greeks or the Persians or the Romans, they were going uh, west from the east. And these were people who came from somewhere in northern, northern Siberia and, and they wore trousers. Um, and uh, Amazons were amongst them. The pictures of Amazons wearing trousers. And uh, so they weren't particularly gender specific. And uh, uh, some of these cultures were matriarchic, but not enough is known about this, really. There's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Who would have thought trousers were such a rich field of history to, to, to plumb? <laughs> <laughs> so you make a strong connection in your book between the introduction of trousers to Asia as a product of uh, colonialism by European powers. Nowadays, they are as common in Asia as they are here, but do you believe this gave them an authoritarian connotation in the art world when they were introduced? <laughs> in the art world? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I, I, I only use them as a, as a loose symbol of, uh, of, uh, of modernity and uh, uh, efficiency, um, you know, Western efficiency. They were better for fighting with. But the, 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 the tribes in, um, in uh, Eastern Asia knew this uh, because they were all uh, nomadic horse, horse men and women and uh, it, it really, in the, when, when you get through cold steppes and deserts, it makes sense to wear trousers. 
And, uh, um, I don't know how Roman cavalry did. They must have had sort of padded nappies, I think, beneath <laughs> their the, the tunics. And, and there's a kind of un, unmentioned history of trousers, um, which is that they were worn by working people all over the world. Um, from the dawn of history, just because they're a commonsensical, commonsensical article. And this is what I think we see in the earliest depictions you know, from, from uh, 30,000 before Common Era, um, engraved on mammoth tusks. It was damn cold there. <laughs> it makes sense to, 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 just to hem up your uh, whatever it is, your sarong or your toga, uh, to keep your legs and bottom warm. Definitely. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, David. Uh, before we finish the episode, can you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Yeah, I'm starting work on an exhibition of uh, William Kentridge's uh, work for Russia. And I've known him since the late 80s when I was working in South Africa with uh, the ANC and the UDF, United Democratic Front, on putting together an exhibition of, of art from South Africa before I mean, it was still under the apartheid regime but really to show to the world that there was this rich culture which had nothing to do with the with the government or the apartheid regime and um, this is really looking at his strong interests in russian soviet art and culture and how it's impacted on his work also his involvement with the struggle against apartheid and how both these elements are fed into his current work now um, and uh, that all being well, we're not having a war in Ukraine, is scheduled for St. Petersburg in uh, 2023. And I'll be doing some writing in relationship to that. I've also had another book on the boil for a while, and I really need to get this uh, into some sort of shape, which is looking at more generally at questions of art and its relationship to power and how it both expresses and, um, and uh, upsets power at different levels. So art has an intrinsic, my argument is art has an intrinsic power of its own, which is in the disinterestedness of the artist. Um, the artist has no other interest in them other making good art. Um, and they go wherever it takes them. And this somehow, I mean, going back to my origin, <laughs> the Nazi thing, somehow upsets totalitarians of all sort. Uh, they don't like that. And they more than upsets them, it's ballistic. And, and it's, it's following that story through to now. And I mean, the, 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 the amount of censorship going on in China is very, very worrying. I mean, it's, it's terrible. I directly experienced it myself when I was working there. And uh, it's very depressing to be going back to a time when governments feeling they have to censor artists and censor anyone. Yeah, it's hard watching a, a new Tiananmen Square statue taken down in Hong Kong every day at the moment. It's quite... Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's uh, there's a lot to a long way to go still, isn't there? In every in, in human rights in general, and when it comes to severe oppression like this, it's, uh, it's very tough. So can't sleep on the job. Got to keep awake. Definitely. definitely. Don't take anything for granted. Know to ask the right questions. Yes, and art is as important as it ever was. I think is the message to take away there. Commenting on these issues. Good art. Yeah. Good arts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it gets commodified very often. Sometimes good art gets commodified. And uh, it's, a, it's a miracle how flexible capitalism can be. Um, but uh, there's nothing a matter with that. Uh, but, but I mean, quality is above everything. It's not whether uh, 
how much it costs, is it? Exactly. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me again, David. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You can find a link to David's website in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or find us on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Jonathan Root, Senior Lecturer in Film Studies at the University of Greenwich to discuss Samurai in Cinema. Together, Jonathan and I look at the many faces of Samurai in Japanese cinema and their global influence on film producers. Jonathan also focuses on Zatoichi, the lone blind swordsman that has graced film and TV in Japan and elsewhere for over 50 years. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.